You're listening to City Church Long Beach Sermons Podcast. You can visit us at citychurchlongbeach.org. Good morning, friends. Thanks. I'm glad you're already having a seat, getting cozy. Uh, Those of you who don't know me, I'm Brenna Rubio. I'm one of the co-pastors here at City Church of Long Beach. My pronouns are she, her. And I want to welcome everybody. So we are actually, we always worship in at least two spaces here at Lafayette, and then we also have some amazing folks who join us on Zoom. Uh, And this morning, we also have a group who are at Long Beach Pride, and they gathered together, and they are doing church and being church and just doing the things uh, down at the Long Beach Pride. And so I think we have a couple pictures. Yes, here are a couple amazing humans who I think, given the level of sweat, might have been post-5K. Um, both amazing. One is my child who, you know, extra amazing to me. Uh, and then our whole crew down there at Pride. And so we're just so glad. Um, this is our, our first year really participating in Pride this way. Uh, and we're really excited about it. So glad for all of you here. Glad for all the folks here. Glad for all the folks on Zoom. Because together, we are all pursuing the same vision. City Church of Long Beach, we want to be a radically welcoming community on the journey towards Jesus joining him in the renewal of all things. So thanks for being part of that this morning, however you chose to do it. Uh, We love our kiddos. Uh, And so our friend Ian, who brought his guitar today, because he's going to go out with the kiddos and do some fun musical things, he's going to pray for the kids as we get started. And then you're going to get to go with Ian and a couple others. So thanks, Ian. All right, let's pray. God, thank you so much for our children. Just pray for them right now that you would bless them and keep them and make your face to shine upon them. And God, I just pray that you would uh, help them to love each other as you loved us and uh, help us to get along and not punch each other. (laughs) And God, I just uh, thank you for the joy and uh, the faith and the love that they help show us. Uh, So help me learn from that too. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thanks, Ian. Okay, kiddos, if you want to follow out, uh, you can for stories and songs, all sorts of goodness. And I hope you don't get too warm. (laughs) It's hot out. So I was thinking this morning as my kid was getting ready to go out to join in the Pride 5K and yeah, just thinking about this, this wonderful thing that we get to be church at Pride this morning. Um, It really just brought home to me. (laughs) We say every Sunday that we want to be a radically welcoming community. It's really one of our hallmarks as a church. It's, It's one of the most common reasons that when we talk to people, hey, why are you visiting City Church? You know, what brought you here? Why did you decide to join us? It's because they were looking for a church that was radically welcoming that through the doors wide open says, you belong. We're not just gonna tolerate you. We're gonna celebrate you to everyone, but especially to the LGBTQ plus community. And so acknowledging that being a radically welcoming community is sort of a distinctive of who we are means there's a flip side, right? That what many of us have experienced is that many communities are not radically welcoming that they are selectively welcoming. And with that, that the picture we get of God is a God who is selectively 
welcoming, a God whose love is limited, conditional. And I just, as I was thinking about that, I felt so sad. There are just all of these emotions of, of just sadness as I was thinking back and so much of my church history and how I've been formed and what I've been invited into and what I've dabbled in and what I've been part of. So I was thinking of a particular story. Um, it was my senior year of college and I was having a really strange, wonderful, but strange season where all of these people were coming out of the woodworks who wanted to talk to me about their spiritual journeys. Uh, and I didn't have a clue and I was very honest about that with people who want to talk to me. I'm like, no special training here, right? But this was part of how I, I ended up where I am here today as a professional talker with people about their spiritual journeys. Um, but people just would share with me and, and I'd listen and I'd ask questions. And if they asked me questions, I'd do my best to answer with a very like, oh, I don't know, but maybe. Um, and so I remember one particular friend that we'd been in this conversation for, for several months and she she was really interested in Jesus. She's just interested. She was drawn by him. But one night she asked me if I wanted to go for a walk, and, and I did. And she told me, and she was she was crying. She said, I have reached this point where I feel like I have to say no to Jesus. I have to say no to Jesus because I have all of these family and friends who don't follow Jesus. And I feel like if I decide to be a follower of Jesus, it means I'm leaving them behind. And I'm saying that they're wrong and they're bad. And I won't do that to them. I just won't. And I don't remember what I said to my friend. I just, I just remember that feeling of just sadness, even in that moment, because it was true in terms of what the church that I'd grown up in, that I think many of us have grown up in, presented, that there was this sense of, of a wall, that there were some people who had special access to God and some people who didn't. And so she wasn't making it up, this, this sense that she'd gotten, I hope not for me, but certainly from how Christianity is often presented that some people are in and some people are out. And so she chose to be in. She was calling the people she loved out. And I think a lot of us have struggled with that discomfort. We haven't known maybe how to name it, or maybe we have. And if we have in some church spaces, we might've gotten in trouble for it. The sense of, yeah, why, why are we bouncers for God? deciding who's, who's in and who's out. Why are we supposed to do that? And some of us have been on the side where we've, we've been bounced and we know the damage of that. And so I'm just being honest, like while I think there's, there's hope for us, I hope we're gonna get to a not all needly wrapped up. I mean, I'm not gonna tie everything up in a nice neat bow, but I think I think we're gonna to get to a more hopeful place in this conversation today. I think we have to admit, even as we listen to this scripture this morning, that there's, there's sort of a sad starting point, this sense 
of some people have access and some people don't. And you're going to hear it as our scripture is read for us. First, just a little context, just a reminder. We've been in the book of Exodus for a few weeks now, a month or so. Um, last week, I missed it. There was an amazing sermon about divorce. Um, go check it out if you guys missed it too. It was incredible. Um, but we're in this, this series about the book of Exodus and, and this journey that the Israelites are taking and God rescuing them. God's love just saying, I will not leave you in bondage. I will take you to a safe place and I will establish you and I will care for you. And so our passage today is a milestone moment in this journey, in this story. They have been rescued from Egypt. They've been wandering in the desert and now they come to Mount Sinai, which was the first place that God appeared to Moses, kind of kicking this whole journey off. And now God is going to appear again, not just to Moses, but to all of the people. So if I could have our friend Paul Lim come up and if we could all welcome him. Yes, thank you. He's going to read scripture for us this morning. And if you would like to, and if you're able, if you'd like to rise in honor of the reading of God's word. Thanks, Paul. Hey, I got to read your shirt first, just in case anybody else can't read it. Why be racist, sexist, homophobic, or transphobic when you could just be quiet? Amen. People of God, this is the word God. No, just kidding. <laughs> okay, Paul, go ahead. Then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob, and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt, and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. People of God, this is the word of God. Thank you so much, Paul. What's that? Oh, hey, give me a, an AC break. It's getting warm in here. You know you're at a small church when the pastor takes a break to turn on the AC but it's an essential ministry. Okay. So there's, there are lots of things going on in this little passage. And I want to call out first that there's some real goodness in this, this word of God coming to Moses for the people of Israel. He's saying, hey, you saw what I did. You saw how I rescued you, how I carried you. I brought you to safety. This is love. It's care. It's commitment. What's about to happen on Mount Sinai as, as God is preparing to reveal himself in a particular way to the people of Israel, it's, it's kind of like a recommitment ceremony. Like if you can imagine, you know, two 70-year-olds, right, saying like, hey, we've been at this for a while, this relationship we've had, and let's celebrate it again. Let's, let's redo our vows. Let's go for it, right? Not because anything has failed, but just because let's celebrate. Let's remind ourselves of the goodness of this commitment and this love. And so God is saying, this is how much I love you. Let's, I'm going to remind you. You're going to help me, Moses. And so that's good. One of the other things that we really see in a couple different ways here, though, is how hierarchical the system is, right? Because 
Well, God's God. Why did God have to say that to Moses for Moses to say it to the people, right? Like, well, that's an interesting system. Um, Moses seems to have in the story a special role, special access to God. And as we've talked about before, uh, relying especially on the work of Dr. Will Gaffney, who's an expert in Old Testament uh, scripture and theology, uh, especially from a womanist perspective, you know, she would just say, hey, this was their cultural understanding. There's this sense in which, yes, scripture is inspired, scripture is holy, and it's a partnership of a God who, yes, is speaking to God's people, wants to reach out, wants to communicate, and then here are the people who can only understand so much, and only in the language and the structures that they actually have conceptually to receive it. And so Dr. Gaffney would say, hey, the people knew hierarchy. That was how they understood God and God's work because that to them was a picture of what reality was. And so Moses does have special access to God. He just does, that's what we see in the passage. He plays sort of a priestly function. He's an intermediary going in between the people and God. And it's meant to be for the benefit of the people, that they, at least in this secondhand way, get to hear from God. It's supposed to be for their good. Um, and there's something kind of fearsome lurking in the background too. And again, I'm just, I'm putting the mess in front of you. I don't, I don't know what to do except say, hey, it's there, it's honest. Because the picture that's presented earlier in, in the passage um, is that as God's presence reveals itself on Mount Sinai, that they actually need to prepare and put limits in place. Like you can imagine kind of like caution markers, caution tape all around the mountain. Don't get too close, people. Be careful that you don't approach the mountain or even touch the foot of it because whoever touches it is to be put to death. Like that there is something so serious, so weighty about the presence of God and and that the people are not ready for it in the way that Moses is. So Moses isn't just an intermediary, but he's actually gatekeeping. Again, as I say this, I do want to offer a little clarification or a little caution that I'm reacting to this passage out of my experience with it as an evangelical Christian, as an American Christian, and how so often it's been used. Um, This is not necessarily the reading that the passage would be given in a Jewish context, right? I'm reacting to my own cultural context. (sighs) Because we see this all the time. This is how those special people, the priests, the professional Christians, the people who have special access to God in our churches, in our context, they gatekeep. Here's the caution tape. You know, I remember my mom as a kid sharing she tried to volunteer for like kids ministry in her church, and she didn't go to the special two night services a week, you know, the prayer meeting and whatever. And so she wasn't allowed to go and do children's ministry. Man, you've shown up here once. We might think about letting you work in children's (laughs) ministry. I'm exaggerating just a little bit, just a little bit. (laughs) Uh, But we gatekeep. There are insiders. And then there are true insiders, and there are the outsiders. And it hurts. 
it hurts when that happens to us. So we see this hierarchy with Moses having access to God. And we say, yep, we see that in our churches too. There are some people who seem to be set apart. They have special access. I mean, honestly, the fact that so many pastors test as narcissists, because you have to be to get up here and somehow think you have a special word from God, right? Just so you know, I test on the opposite end of the spectrum. Um, yeah, it's, it's hurtful. But then there's the other part, the other sort of exceptionalism in this passage. Who else has special access to God? Well, though they're limited in comparison to Moses, it's the whole people of Israel, right? They're being told, hey, you are going to have a special relationship. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. You're special, Israel. Now, American Christianity, again, has a really interesting relationship with this story and with those words. Because on the one hand, it has completely appropriated it. And on the other hand, it has completely rejected it. It's fascinating. We appropriate it because we say, yeah, just like Israel was God's favorite nation, so are we, right? Nobody else has gotten it right until us, which is why you can trust us and why we can do whatever we want because it's all for your good, right? Now, on the other hand, we also reject it because it, as we say that, as we take it for our own, we say, oh, that was the old covenant in this story. And we know that we have the new and the better covenant ourselves. It's our story, but we tell it better, basically. And this sense of superiority, right, which infuses itself in everything. It's part of our religious nationalism, right? It's part of all the stories of war based on religious reasons and empire and, and justification for slavery. It's been wrapped up in so much the sense that somehow we're better. We've been given special status. And so we can do whatever we want. And of course, it'll be for your good. In the story in the news this week about how slavery was so good for the slaves. Oh my gosh. We tell ourselves these twisted, twisted stories. So how do we, how do we deal with this? I know for many of us, it's come up a few times recently. Uh, a friend here at church, you texted me and said, hey, you know, I'm having all these feelings and doubts and because I'd, I'd shared something to my social media about our church because I love it and God's doing so much in my life. And then I got really nervous that my friends were gonna think I was somehow like kind of telling them they needed to think the way I do. And so I took it down. And that made total sense to me, partly because I used to be a missionary. That was, you know, I, I had this season of life where all these people were, you know, talking with me about their spiritual journeys. And I said, that's cool. Wow, somebody will let me do this for a living. Okay, that sounds good. But then I got in there with this organization and realized, oh, you don't want me to just listen 
They want me to fix people. They want me to convert them. They have a process they want me to follow, a goal. It's not enough just to say, wow, you're having some great thoughts. God is, God is doing something cool in your life. Tell me more. That was not what they wanted because we knew the one right way, and I was supposed to share that with people. What do we do with all of this? How do we make sense of our faith in Jesus, our desire to live into the love that Jesus has for us, and not be a colonizing jerk? How do we do that? So I want to think just a little bit this morning about this idea of covenant. Have you guys, I mean, how weird is that word to some of you? It's kind of, it's a Christianese sort of word. Is it a weird word to people? Okay, a few people are raising their hands. Okay, so covenant, fancy biblical type word for, it's a contract. It's a contract. Two people, two parties who are making a deal, each promising to fulfill one side of a bargain. Not having the same cultural customs as us, Back in the time of the story, it might involve things like animal sacrifice, some blood, some fire, things like that. Uh, but it was, it was a contract, and that was the cultural context in which uh, it happened. And so the sense that we're having a recommitment ceremony here where God's saying, hey, I'm just, I'm just renewing a promise that I made to the people of Israel hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years ago. It's that original covenant idea. And it can be helpful to go back to that just a little bit. Um, it doesn't do away with all the problems, but it can be helpful. So one part is to say that when this original covenant was made with Abraham, back in the book of Genesis, we're in Exodus, it's the second book of the Bible. Genesis is the first book of the Bible. Moses is a kind of a starring character in Exodus. Abraham was a starring character in the book of Genesis. So God shows up to Abraham and says, hey, I'm going to make you the father of a great nation. It was not about how amazing Abram was. Like, Abram didn't have anything special that he was bringing into the covenant. He was a mess, just like all of us. And it's actually good to notice that, just to kind of say, like, any sense of being a special people or a special covenant was never, ever supposed to be about any special qualities of the person or people involved. God was doing all the work. God God was taking care of both sides of the bargain from the very beginning. But here's the part that I think often gets messed up and used the wrong way in this story. Because what's said is, Abraham, I'm going to make you the father of a great nation, and all peoples on earth will be blessed by you. That's a really potentially dangerous phrase. Because often it's used as we were talking about before, as a very paternalistic excuse to misuse your power and privilege, right? To say, I know what's best. So even though you don't like what I'm doing, um, I, I'm really blessing you, right? With my power and my authority and my gunfire, right? Um, it's really dangerous when we use it that way, when we use it as justification, for something we're doing that's wrong, that is forceful against, it's powering up over another person 
community, people group. On the other hand, it can actually be pretty excellent as a test. If we were actually to ask ourselves, does my faith in God, however that looks, however I'm holding it, does it actually bear good fruit? Are people around me, are they glad I'm Christian? Like, do they experience it as a good thing that means good things in their life? When we first started talking about, hey, we should go to Pride this year, a few months ago, I'll admit to you, like, I loved the idea in one, in one hand, you know, I'm like, oh, I wish we'd been doing this years ago. And on the other hand, I was a little fearful because what I knew was that sometimes, heard the stories, I know people have had the experiences, churches have gone to pride kind of under false pretenses. Let me show you how much I love you and give, me, give you water, you know, tell you how much God loves you because I want to get you to my church where I'll let you know that you're wrong and I'll fix you. And so I was just a little bit nervous. And, and for me, it was very simple, right? To say like, hey, let's make sure some of our LGBTQ folks are the ones leading us into pride and leading us in those connections. That'll help uh, a lot to make sure that we're not going in with this like, ooh, look at us, this newly progressive church. We know everything. <laughs> Showing up at pride for the first time in 2023. Um, stay humble, right? But it's a great test. Are we actually blessing people around us? Or are the people we're claiming to love, do they run at the sight of us? I think, I think you can share about, you know, the church that you love and things that are meaningful to you and quotes that are meaningful to you, as long as the people around you don't experience you as a jerk. If they experience you as a jerk, that's probably not going to go over so well, right? If they experience you as someone who's a know-it-all, somebody who thinks you're better than, yeah, it's probably not going to fly. But if you're humble, if you're loving, if this is just an expression of, hey, this is something that's meaningful to me, tends not to be so much of a problem. The other thing about covenant that I think we've gotten wrong so often is we talk so often in the church about old covenant, this picture that we have in Sinai, and new covenant, as if they're a binary. Binaries are always so problematic, right? I mean, even, I, I still haven't quite figured out how to deal with the language problem. You know, as I talk about like Genesis and Exodus in the Old Testament versus the New Testament. Okay, that's fine if we're talking timeline, but so often when we hear the words Old and New, Old Testament, New Covenant, or New Testament, Old Covenant, New Covenant, we actually think more in terms of gradation, right? That the new is better than the old. It's improved, updated. So an alternative, just so you guys know, would be Hebrew scriptures versus Greek scriptures. That would be one way around that. There's more than just one covenant. There are actually a lot of different pictures of covenant. And here's one that Dr. Gaffney points out that I just loved. It's found in the book of Jeremiah, chapter 31, verses 33 through 34. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. 
I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord. I guess no standing on street corners with signs. Because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their wickedness and I will remember their sins no more. There's covenant all over the place. And this is one picture once again of God saying, hey, that covenant I had with you, yes, 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 and. It's like the improv thing, right? Yes, what I told Moses, and let's imagine together this day where Moses isn't needed. The Ten Commandments, which we're going to get to, I think, next week, on stone, that's not needed. I don't need intermediaries because everybody knows me. My love is that wide. I am that accessible. People like me and Bill, we're out of a job. And that's a good thing. Everybody knows God from the least to the greatest. They all have the same access. No need for priests, no gatekeeping. The hierarchy has been completely collapsed. What I love about the way Dr. Gaffney pulls from this passage is that she reminds us that while this is different, it's not in competition with the old covenant. It's, there's, there's not a binary relationship where it's like this new covenant in Jeremiah, much less what we're going to see in a few minutes in Hebrews, is wiping out the older thing, but rather they're building on each other. I get this picture of an expansion, an ever-expanding covenant of grace and love. She says this, you see, God plays the long game. The revelation of God is ongoing. It's not zap or poof. Jeremiah speaks of a new or perhaps better, another covenant. But the truth is there were more than two. God made a covenant with Noah and his wife. That was also Genesis. Their children and their families. God made a covenant with Abram and Sarah and their children for all time. God made a covenant with the children of Israel in the wilderness. The tablets with the Ten Commandments with a notarized copy. God made a covenant with David further on in the story. And God adopted us because of Jesus. We're heirs to the covenants, but we must never forget we're here by grace. And we should be grateful that each of these covenants built on the one before without breaking a single promise, without canceling, nullifying, or rejecting the previous covenant, because God is trustworthy. I love that first line. You see, God plays a long game. We talked in the beginning that part of the problem is that God is trying to communicate with us, and we're limited. We just don't get it all the time. And so there's a sense that God has not changed. God's love has always been incredibly wide, just unlimited, there for everyone. But we have been slow to see it. We have been limited. It's taken a while. He's had to work with our primitive tribal minds and perspectives, stretching us over time to say, do you see it? Do you see how big I am? I'm not a bouncer. <laughs> I'm not a gatekeeper. My love is here for you. I picture it almost as a, this snowball of grace, one layer building on the other, always expanding and ever expanding covenant. 
And when we have that perspective, not just an old covenant and a new covenant, but an ever-expanding covenant, I think it gets us ready to read in Hebrews 12, the sense of where does Jesus come into the story? So in Hebrews 12, it says, you haven't come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire. That was the covenant at Sinai. But the story has rolled on. And now you've come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You've come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. You've come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. I'm just going to admit it. I think I would rather have Jesus be my mediator than Moses. That's just where I'm at. Because when I picture Jesus standing at that door, I don't picture a bouncer. I picture a host who says, come in, come in, come in. Because this is Jesus who loved sitting at the table with the prostitutes and the tax collectors and the sinners, with the lepers. I'm not worried about him gatekeeping. I would trust this mediator. I think for me, as we, as we end here, and I know I'm, I'm still thinking through so many of these things myself, so I hope, I hope there's been a little something for you to grab on. But the question for me as I end is thinking, how are we living into this ever-growing snowball of grace? What does that mean to us? What, do, what certainties or senses of superiority might we have to, to give up, let go of, to truly live into this ever-expanding covenant? Are there places where it's healing because you've experienced that sense of rejection that you've been put on the outside? And I was thinking a bit about what I would say to my friend, the one who decided, hey, I can't follow Jesus because I would be leaving my friends behind. And, like I said, I don't remember what I said to her back then. But these days, I think I would, this is what I think I would say. First, I think I would want to say sorry. Just sorry. As a representative of this religion, I'm so sorry that this is what we have communicated. This is what we have lived out. This sense of superiority and that there is in and there's out, and your loved ones would be pushed to the side. I'm so sorry about that. And then I think I would wanna say, that's not the faith that I myself am trying to live into, that I, what I believe for you, what I believe for myself, what I'm trusting is true, is that we can each follow God's lead in our lives without judging the journey, the spiritual journey of the people next to us, right? That I can actually trust and be humble enough to believe that God might be working in their lives in a different way than God is working in mine. And I'm not in charge of their spiritual journey. In fact, I can still be encouraged by it. I can still learn from it. Because in light of an ever-expanding covenant, 
Man, it would be so silly to believe that we are the first ones in human history who have gotten it all right. I don't know yet where I've gotten it wrong, but I know it's there. And I'm going to live in light of that humility. And I'm going to, I hope, live in a way that says, man, what is God doing in your life? I'm so curious. I have no need to control it or to judge it as in versus out.